welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy, uh, your place for queer lifestyle, queer history, queer science, queer culture, and all things LGBTQ. You're here with uh, your two hosts, fantastic, sensational hosts, me, Dave Thurston Jen, and with me I've got... Hannah Bestwick. Hi, Hannah, how are you doing? Yeah, I liked your intro. Um, I thought you were going to say something along the lines of the fantastic me, and then also <laughs> Hannah's here too. Yeah, and also Hannah. <laughs> I'm here as well. Yeah, oh my gosh, what a week it's been. It's been moving house, everything's boxes, don't know where anything is. Everything's um, boxes. Everything is boxes. It's like all my things have transformed into boxes of various sizes, and they're all inside each other like some kind of horrific uh, nesting doll situation Matrushka oh, um, of m- moods exactly and none of them are labelled because I'm not that organised so yeah I, I disagree with that I think you're very organised goodness me how have you been how's this um, all been for you yeah it's been a yeah the Matrushka um, why I mean are they toys like, how are they toys it's the most stressful game what the nesting doll things yeah. I have absolutely no idea what they're for apart from that they are there it's like all of them and then because some people some people display them like out of Mm. themselves in little display like in a little row but then what's the point in having them nesting if you're just always going to have them on display in a row Mm. and no one's allowed to play with them anyway it probably doesn't matter as much it's probably just a traditional thing we'll look into it next time yeah the queer history of the (laughs) nesting dolls somehow yes i don't know about that (laughs) me neither well i guess nesting how can i make a segue here i'll try very hard okay nesting this week i'm going to talk about queerness in horticulture Ooh. and uh botany and gardening and all things sort Love of it. green like your rural queers but like more honed to gardening yeah definitely yeah. kind of taking it into the smaller patch of land you've been um, watching monty don at all monty don i had a cat called monty um yes, so i probably the better one <laughs> yeah i don't know much about monty don my mum my mum likes him and he's always to... tuning in the only i know that older ladies fucking love him i worked briefly maybe this is slanderous but i worked with a guy who used to produce uh, the show that he's on and he said that he's an absolute nightmare that he's really grumpy and really hard to work with I garden. he just he just wants to garden that's the whole thing is that he is Fair he's a gardener and he's great at it uh, it doesn't really want to be on tv but you know if you are if you are going to be a tv personality you've kind of got to be into it mm. That's kind of the point. There was a there was a picture I found during my uh, during my research of Alice Fowler. Mm. Um, yeah, found a photo of Monty Don and Alice Fowler. Um, Alice Fowler uh, recently um, came out um, as gay. And, hey, nice! Um, Congratulations. Uh, and sort of attributes a lot of um, you know the process of kind of taming the garden as kind of a time of where where she comes to term with her own um, you know her her sexuality and and her um, you know relationship to her her sense of self um, as well. But uh, there's a photo of her smiling at Monty Don, uh, which I saw during my research Beautiful. that I thought so maybe he's not terrible all the time. You just have to be talking to him yeah, about I'm like sure bluebells. I, I'm sure he's really great if you're like working with him, as in like gardening with him. Sorry, mm. I'm sure he's a fountain of knowledge, and that's amazing. But yeah, to get him to do something on TV, if he doesn't want to, it's not going to do it. So probably people who are already like switching off, like. Well, they hate. Well, they hate Monty Don, so I'm leaving. <laughs> um, but no, I'm going to talk to you about, um, yeah, about kind of queerness, uh, queer gardeners um, in history, and also uh, like the nature of, of queerness. Um, I recently started a, a nature writing course um, with the uh, the wonderful Elspeth Wilson. Um, if you don't know her, she's a fantastic poet, Amazing. researcher, facilitator, um, whose work kind of focuses a lot on on queerness and gender, um, as well as disability and the environment. Um, yeah. So yeah, best best place for me really um yeah i'm in safe hands um you've been going well you've been writing lots of things yeah i'm on week two yeah it's been it's been a really it's just made me take a lot more notice of the garden um and 
the weather and all things natural. Um, nice. Which is nice. So I've also, yes, also moved in recently with someone who I would describe as green-fingered. Hey! Um, but whereas I kind of brought with me like a couple of bedraggled pot plants, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys come with a, a full greenhouse, you know, this entire like botany nursery. Um, oh, indeed. By, by the time I arrived in the house, it was, you know, and I super appreciate it, all the, all the greenness that's lining all the walls and windowsills. Yeah, it makes it just, I don't know, I really love having house uh, house plants. Just bringing the nature indoors mm. is really important. Um, I also think horticulture is seen as sort of like an art form as well. Mm. Um, so a lot of the Definitely. examples I'm going to talk about are going to be um, artists and um, and and queer artists and their relationship to to gardens and gardening. Um, That's amazing. Please, do go ahead. uh, So botany, simply put, uh, is the study of plants and their place in evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's part of the science of biology, as you'll know. Mm -hmm. Um, The first botanical gardens, uh, which are gardens devoted purely to the scientific study of plants, uh, Mm -hmm. emerged around the 16th century uh, in Italy. Um, Amazing. Yeah, where one such garden was uh, created at the University of Pisa in 1543. Oh my god, that's amazing. So long-standing, so these were, yeah, that was the first designated garden for botany and the study of of botany. And uh, sort of around the same time in the UK, um, Sir Francis Bacon, who is our resident sort of gardening gay, um, uh, was writing about... Um, was gay yeah, and um, was writing about um, yeah with some other kind of seventeenth century philosophers and, and scientists was writing about plant sensitivity, which is really oh. lovely, um, and challenging this sort of prior notion that plants um, had an insensitive or, or passive vegetative soul, uh, mm. whereas animals had a more active sensitive soul. Yeah, um, and it was basically like, hey, plants, are, hey, plants have a whole a whole thing going on. They've got a whole soul as well. So I'm interested in why queer people in history are drawn to botany mm-hmm. um, and how that may affect, how that has affected sort of later generations of queer folk, you know, such as us and, you know, people who take an active interest in gardening. Like maybe there's something a bit deeper and it, it you know, it started like ages ago. It's not just like a 2020 lockdown thing. It's, it's, yeah, it's rooted. It is rooted in our history. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can probably talk about this way more than I can, but uh, I yeah, it. plants are queer as fuck, basically. Oh, so queer. Uh, we know this. Uh, so the reproductive organs, typically the flower, um, can be unisex, mm-hmm. uh, meaning they own separate male and female attributes, uh, either as separate specimens or within the same plant. So lots of kind of, yeah, either kind of unisex or intersex. You've also got some species which are technically bi, um, known as uh, simultaneous hermaphroditism, which means it has both male and female parts within the same flower. And other types have uh, sequential uh, her- hermaphroditism, uh, which means they're temporarily transgender. Amazing. Um, correct me if I'm getting this wrong. Um, so they transition their form from male to female um, according to various factors, such as like time of day or... Um, or the year, or like other environmental conditions, yeah, age, yeah, age yeah. of the flower, all that kind of stuff. But it's about that kind of temporary, kind of transitory state. Yeah. So that's. But I don't, yeah, I don't think that's why queer people are attracted to gardening. Like, even no, this though is just why gardening is like, sorry, plants, plants, plants are queer. queer. Plants are very queer. Uh, full stop. Close that book. And then yeah, queer people are kind of attracted to gardening, sort of for different reasons. And yeah. I was sort of, I was that's what I was really interested in. So I did some digging. Um, no. And I actually only know like a handful of gardeners. Actually, yeah, I feel like they're a solitary breed. Yeah, my uncle's a landscape gardener and just a, a oh, gardener, really? and he 
he just wants to be alone and he just wants to be in the garden with his plants and he's very sweet and most gardeners i know do just want a very nice quiet life solitary life yeah like i know a lot of people who have gardens or own gardens but i don't know any proper like hardly any proper gardeners but according to uh, an auto straddle survey uh, last year it was found that queer folk will make the most out of even the tiniest outdoor patch of land yeah anything that they can find basically um queer people are more likely to kind of make you know utilize it make the most of it make the most of it yeah um and that was certainly true within like my queer friendship circle like throughout uh, throughout lockdown you know t- this taking like an invested interest um in in land own- ownership no matter how small um because it's that connection to land which i think is you know an opportunity that's often denied to queer people yeah i was gonna say i feel like we've we've always had to as it were scratch out a living mm. in the places that we're allowed to be yeah the dingiest nastiest clubs in greenwich in new york yeah just were the place that we could be so we made the most of it yeah definitely i say we like i was there but like <laughs> you know i think Marshall like P. johnson in that nasty club horrible but they made it a home yeah i think it's you know the nature of being like an urban queer is sort mm. of not really synonymous with green and, and gardening and it, and like i said in the previous um previous episode of, yeah about urban you know rural queers sorry oh, yeah, like it is yeah it's there is a divide right mm, um mm. you don't naturally associate it so land ownership and, and lavish gardens are often often seen as like these unattainable fantasies for inner city queer people um like the fanciful dreams of uh, the wealthy maybe like a north london dandy yeah but like mostly kind of in (laughs) the inherited privilege of like a country bumpkin Mm. and not really common muck like us (laughs) <laughs> really but over the last year i think that um you know there has been this rise in queer people taking pride um in creating these kind of miniature edens on their on their balconies or on their windowsills or you know garden paths signing up to allotments um or finally just like turning the soil in whatever disused veg patches out the back of their rented flat yeah so it's been really nice and i think the pandemic has done a lot for the green the greener good for the world um you know less airfare and all that stuff um air travel but i think it's also made people take to their gardens and there's probably loads of loads more good plant stuff out there like because of people spending more time at home and spending yeah. more time in their gardens I feel like as well with like it's sorry it's making me think of um i used to work in a, in a big office building in the center of bristol right by the in the temple quay which is just um, offices basically all concreted over and there was between my office and the office next door there was a little patch of grass <laughs> and it was completely fenced in one day i came out of the office and I'd noticed that somebody had built a vegetable patch in it, like just uh, two plots with vegetables in it. And over that summer, I watched all the plants oh, grow in there. So and I was nice. like, I wonder who's doing that. And I wonder who's taken the time out of their office day or like made a, made a gardening <laughs> club or something. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. was like, they're probably pretty queer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, there's this thing like guerrilla gardening as well. I feel mm. like it's a really punk, queer, DIY sort of thing. Oh, definitely. I saw, um, I saw a courgette growing in... Um, somewhere in Tottenham once <laughs> just one just, just like one or two it was like a flower it yeah. was a, and I was like that's that's not a weed that's a that's a courgette that's a fucking courgette just growing <laughs> like on the high street anyway maybe that was some gorilla gardening who knows um, probably wouldn't want to eat it though grim it's probably been peed on by every dog hey good spot um, <laughs> so Julia Bell describes how she experiences her garden um, in a state of conflict mm. between the fantasy of some prelapsarian Eden uh, and the actual process of gardening, which is anxious and compromised, physical, sexual and violent and political. 
called prolapsarian? Prolap, 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 not prolapsarian. <laughs> prolapsarian. <laughs> That's prolapsarian. This is the quote from Julie Bell. Um, yeah. So she's clearly far more far more articulate than I am. Mm, indeed. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, a kind of an, an attainable, fan, inobtainable fantasy. Mm. Like the status of, com- we you know, comparable to eating. Grand ideas about what we can do. Mm. Uh, like Mr. Hoppy in SEO Trot with his yes. absolutely gorgeous balcony yeah, yeah, yeah. full of plants with like fun uh, gadgets to water them and things oh, like that. So but then when it comes down to it, we've got got sort of slightly wilting things yeah, hanging yeah. off the side. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely it. So in her in Julie Bell's essay, uh, "The Disorder of Things," mm. she says that rather than creating a retreat or a space um, for the personal or the reflective, um, it actually throws her into a state of anxiety. Oh no! Um, a place where she must like you know make decisions and, and actually take responsibility, knowing that her actions, all of them, like have consequences. Mm, mm. I definitely um, get anxiety being like. Did I water it enough or too like mm. not enough too much? Who you knows? Like, to it. is it ripe yet? Is it ripe tomorrow, or is it going to be dead tomorrow? Or was it ripe yeah. yesterday and like yeah, yeah, yeah. too long? Yeah. It like puts you on the spot as a as a human, like mm. to be like I should be good at this. This is natural, like yeah. You know, she's she's absolutely right. Like it's a lot of pressure, yeah. a lot of pressure. Um, you know, to mess around with the the natural order of things, manhandling to be like I've decided this is going to be here, yeah. and then it dies, and you're like, fuck. That happened to me when my partner first moved here. Yeah, I went to the garden, and it was it was absolutely overgrown, so it didn't really matter what we did; it would be an improvement. You couldn't see any of the path or the, mm. or the floor because of all the weeds, and we ripped them all up. And then I transplanted two trees. But I made the stupid mistake of doing it in the middle of the day on the hottest day of the year, basically, and they both just died. And I was Aww. like, "Fuck! I've killed. I'm I'm a murderer. <laughs> yep. I killed those <laughs> they plants were doing so fine. dead, and they were doing really well where they well they were doing okay where they were. They went through. And I made the decision that killed them. And I felt I've still got all my conscience clearly two yeah. years later. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a it's an ecosystem. It's a you know delicate balance and sort of to propagate tiny lives and and grow mm. roots. Like it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So aside from that you know the kind of instagrammable rising trend of like i don't know cottage core or garden core whatever it is like you know what is it about gardening that attracts queer people in particular um and actually keeps us you know turning turning the soil on our knees in the dirt yeah so julia bell describes it as a very um close communication you know losing yourself in the physical language of the living things around mm. you which I thought was quite nice um this kind of constant alertness to surrounding existence and i think that is you know that is maybe what that that solitary mm. feeling is and why people crave quite it meditative I yeah think, for yeah a lot of people definitely and i think it is that yeah because it's an unspoken connection you know it's very personal like this almost secret nature of communicating with others, you know, these subtle s- signals, um, you know, between the plants and, and the gardener. Um, yeah, I think that there can be a bit of an escape there, mm. release of the pr- from the pressure. Yeah, of social but it is quite a long, you know, it's a long term commitment. Like, you know, the annual cycle of gardens, you know, having to attend day, you know, every week, if not daily. Um, but, mm. you know, it's looking out for those subtle changes and, you yeah. know, maybe the satisfaction of kind of noticing, yeah, noticing those those really slight changes and kind of evaluating, you know, the state of things, um, you know, just by sense and by feeling and being able to, to help things grow and to, and to listen to the plants. Um, yeah. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Like, yeah. yeah, do you know absolutely, what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of a lot of my queer connection, I think, comes from this, also comes from the unspoken. The, inter- the interactions that feel, you know, that you feel beyond spoken language, you know, they're pretty strong and silent. Like, you know, you talk about gaydar but also that you know a, a sense of community that is so w- much wider than your yourself mm-hmm. yeah so not it's not only promoting a, a more distilled sense of self but of you know interacting with the lives um, around us you know human and non-human mm-hmm. um and forging a new method of existence really like within a more complex ecosystem you know feeling 
like you're part of a you know good machine um, yeah. rather than feeling isolated yeah i think so i think there's a really important and valuable connection to the world in gardening mm. just feeling part of what exists yeah is very grounding as it were and very i suppose like humbling in like a really nice way not when people say, oh, I felt humbled because you feel like someone's put you in your place, but really humbling in a way that you're grateful for afterwards of being like, everything's bigger than me. Mm. Everything existed before me and will continue to exist afterwards. And that's fine. And that's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. That's how I feel mm. <laughs> when I'm outside. I'm now going to talk about uh, Derek Jarman, Ooh. who was an English film uh, filmmaker and artist um, who was kind of famed for creating quite an unusual garden uh, on the beach of uh, Dungeness in Kent. Okay. Since his death in 1994, the site has become a a kind of queer mecca for art students and um design like oh, designers yeah, my and aunt architects. Oh, went recently. I sent me pictures. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. this big kind of grey cabin um, really cottage. Yeah, yeah, on the on the shingle. Yeah, and loads of architects go there, and uh, it successfully acquired um 3.5 million pounds of funding. Um, Gosh. After a campaign to preserve this this queer paradise on the on the shingle beach at Kent, which is which is great, um, yeah. and so the garden is like an arrangement of uh, flints and flowers, um, as well as found objects that are often washed up on the beach. You know, like driftwood or uh, metal poles or like hooks, springs. You know, it's a yeah. real like yeah, it's a real kind of jumble. Yeah, 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 yeah. mashup. Um, <laughs> which uh, yeah, arranged kind of among these wild plants, things like blackthorn, gorse, um, valerian, toad flax, as well as uh, sea kale. Mm. Um, you know, you've got the kind of tattered, you know, bits of kind of kelp and mallow, wild pea, samphire, lupins, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think most of them, if not all of them, are naturally found on the coast in England. Yeah, definitely. Well. Yeah, so they're like naturally there, but they've been brought into this kind of artistic landscape. Displayed. Because I think, you know, a lot of people when they're gardening think of bring, like bringing exotic mm. amazing curious plants yeah but actually the the flora that we have in the uk is so beautiful anyway and mm. he's kind of highlighting that so they've, they've kind of highlighted that by bringing just normal plants in and mm. then yeah, centering yeah, yeah. them yeah and it's stuff that you would probably be walking past in norfolk or kent or yeah. wherever anyway um yeah. you know samphire is i was chatting to my mum about samphire the other day because she was saying that she thought it she thought of it very much as like a sort of Mediterranean, um, you know, exotic thing, but actually, mm. there's loads of it in Norfolk. Yeah, yeah. It's all over the place. <laughs> yeah, it is all over the place. Um, and apparently, yeah, Jarman used to sell the samphire clippings of it. Yeah, just like used to sell it for <laughs> like a quid. Is it cooking or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, delicious. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. what it is. Very, yeah, it's very yummy. You can get it in a, get it in MS if you want. Ooh, nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, in Norfolk and places like along the coast, um, and in Kent, you can just Find just get it. huge bunches of it. Um, bunches. I don't know, clippings of it. Yeah, it just kind of grows in the grows in the sand, like in the kind of wet. Yeah, wet sand um, mm. just out along the coast, really. I'll share some images on our socials um, for anyone who doesn't, um, who isn't familiar. So Jarman's Garden was this was this place of um, of refuge and became um, kind of like a, a natural queer utopia, almost um, like away from the hysteria of uh, the AIDS crisis and um, kind of political landscape of the the late eighties and, and the nineties. Um, mm. uh, towards the end of his life, the artist recalled, "Every flower is a triumph. I've had more fun from this place than I've had with anything else in my life." I should have been a gardener. Oh, and it's wow. like, you are a gardener. Yeah, like... <laughs> you did that. You made that. But it's just such a, you know, to, so beautiful. to hail the garden as like the most fun you've had in your life. Like it's ever. such a, such a personal connection. Yeah. It's a big statement. 
Yeah. In, what I liked about it was um, looking at the photos of Jarman's garden, you know, there's this very, very much a sense of balance um, and acceptance of the, the wilderness, mm. um, you know, allowing those natural elements to, to take over and to infuse with, with the man-made, you know, through the deliberately placed objects he installed. Apparently his original intention was to um, fill it with extravagant roses and things like that, which <laughs> yeah. um, he apparently bought, a, you know, some from you know, lavish Kensington Gardens yeah, yeah. Uh, rose cuttings, but um, they did, just, just wilted and just yeah, didn't they survive. Hated it yeah, the sea. <laughs> it just didn't work. Whereas, you know, the the samphire and the sea kelp and the, and the gorse and everything. Yeah, the been... seaweed, all of that, like that grew and flourished. Yeah, um, so yeah. he soon kind of, you know, went out the window, the roses went out the window and he was eventually described as uh, submitting to the nest, which <laughs> I think is excellent. And, you know, he, he sympathised with this, you know, with the natural way of his garden. Yeah. Um, pruning it, but never quite taming it and sort of being yeah. okay with that. Yeah. You know, you can't really be a perfectionist as a gardener because it will never be done. No. It's never, never going to be done. You can never rest. As soon as you prune something, it's still growing as you're pruning it. Like, it's still going to... It's going to be out of shape the next day. Yeah, whatever. definitely. Um, and I think, you know, his appreciation of, of weeds and shrubs and, and wildflowers is queer. Like, mm. that's very queer in itself. Um, to admire, you know, the unkempt and the unruly. Um, I think, like, that un- unapologetic nature of weeds is just... is totally synonymous with queerness and how we, you know, how we grow and how we thrive um, in... Through cracks in the concrete. Yeah, through impossible circumstances and yeah. adversity. And we, we can be the weeds. Why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> in a uh, in the essay Queer Undergrowth, okay. uh, Joe Crowdy uh, describes weeds as the armpits and pubic hair of the garden, <laughs> <laughs> the parts that get plucked out, shaved Gross. off, and covered up. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they're like an in, you know an inevitable physical presence on the body of the garden plot. You yeah. know, you can't have a you can't have a body without armpit hair, and you can't have a garden without weeds. Yeah, it's takes just constant maintenance, both. Both of them, yes. Yeah. Crowdy describes uh, weeding as the gardener's defying, uh, defining act, okay. which is fair. Um, and also goes on to explain that it allows like an element of control within the chaos of an overrun natural habitat. Yeah, which is very appealing to queer folk, um, in particular. Maybe even subconsciously. Yeah, because I think there's so many elements of our lives, uh, our daily lives, that we are unable to tame. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they write about this urge to take to the undergrowth, um, you know, as a process of envelopment, responding to, to a lust to be held submerged, which I think is really, I don't know, it's this really kind of visceral description of, of mm. letting the garden take take over you um, and kind of, and hold you in a really kind of loving way. It's very maternal. Yeah. Yeah, it's very holding, I think. Definitely. And it's holding because it's wild and over overwhelming. Yeah, if it was too, if it was too manicured, you'd know... You know someone else has been there. That's the thing about, like, a wild space, is it feels private and it feels untouched and it feels mm. unique and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, enveloping, that's such a, like, strong word. And there's, you know, you want to get lost in the undergrowth. You don't want to be, I don't know, what really, I, I hate those tiny bushes. Yeah. You know, those tiny, tiny mini, mini mini hedges you get around fountains mm-hmm, and, like, mm-hmm, National mm-hmm. Trust, but I hate those. Yeah, I want a big, unruly bush full well, of you, you want a massive bush is what we want a massive bush guys <laughs> that's what i'm going for but yeah there's like you know in um so you've been to kew gardens yeah you know there's that you go in and there's that extra fancy house that has its own little garden yeah. in there they're all very low like waist high or lower mm. hedges with very pristine plants in between 
you still feel very exposed in that garden. Mm. You're looking over the top of it and you can be seen and everyone can see you in it. Mm. But if you're in a woodland, if you're in somewhere wild, it come it like covers over you and it also it deadens the sound as well and you feel it's close and it's intimate in a mm. way that those little manicured gardens don't at all. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't hold you in the same way. You no. can't be you don't get that kind of piercing quiet of yeah, of reflection and peace, do you? Yeah. So for those of you who have ever visited uh the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in London, the RVT, mm. um uh, you will know that it's a staple venue, um LGBTQ plus culture, nightlife and entertainment. Um and located behind the pub are the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. <gasps> Um, pleasure gardens. Pleasure gardens, uh, which operated as uh, as a public pleasure garden from the mid seventeenth century to the mid nineteenth century. Pleasure garden is just like a fancy word for a fancy term for park. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was torn between like Blackpool Pleasure Beach and like a pleasure garden. A pleasure garden. Something that's sultry. Yeah, I mean, so well, you're not you're not wrong. Um, oh. So, in yeah, in kind of the mid seventeenth century, uh, inevitably inevitably became like a place for all sorts of illicit activities Gosh. Um, such as drinking gambling uh, pickpocketing petty crime and prostitution um, because it was it was seen as this relaxed area away from the order and structure of urban space so in, in that same um, in the same essay crowd essay crowdy notes on how cultural norms of gender and sexuality were especially blurred at night um, as visitors actors and musicians circulated the gardens and hid amongst the bushes creating this sort of like erotic queer utopia what? and in, in episode 8 we spoke about the significance of Hampstead Heath yeah, um, the, at night the shaking bushes exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens just are Hampstead's uh, 17th century counterpart basically <laughs> is what I've kind of come to the conclusion of yeah it's a dedicated garden for it yeah exactly a garden but I just love that yeah the Pleasure Gardens are right on the you know the doorstep of one of London's most renowned queer venues. I mm. think that's brilliant. So yeah, you yeah, can yeah. still, you know, go for a pint, watch a drag show, and then, I don't know, go for a little stroll in the bushes. Mm. Yep. yep. See what's yep. going on. See what's happening. When I, yeah, when I think of gardening, I inevitably think about uh, Vita Sackville-West. Okay. Um, a writer and horticulturalist who was part of the notorious um, Bloomsbury group. Yes. That's um, that with name. top gal pal and fellow novelist Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Uh, I've got their I've got their letters just up on my bookshelf. Uh, they're kind of because love letters. Gay. Because they were secretly gay for each other. Whoa. Um, and although although Vita Sackville-West was um, you know, she very much considered herself an amateur, but she's she's really she's held in very high esteem as a gardener, um, mm. even though she's terribly uh, modest. So Vita wrote a weekly column um, on gardening in the Observer for over a decade, um, and her gardens nice. at uh, Sissinghurst in Kent are still one of the most visited public gardens in the world. Wow, um, just a fact. So she was doing something right, you know. Yeah, she was doing something very right. And like other queer gardeners I've mentioned, Vita um, has uh, certainly has a, a fond sympathy to uh, the wildness of tending to a garden without like the impossible desire of trying to keep it under control. Like, there's just no point going into a garden, being becoming a gardener, thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna tame the beast. Like there's yeah, just yeah. no there's no point doing that. You will lose <laughs> always. Uh, her always attitude lose. was, "Why not grow anything anywhere, so long as it looks right where it is." Yep, so that sounds good, yep. Good old... Love it. Good old good old Vita. Yeah, and she focused her efforts, like, not on the placement of plants and flowers, but uh, on the care it takes to give them a good start in life. Um, which is, you know, allowing them to bloom and flourish later on. And she likens them to children in that they must develop strong roots early on in um, congenial soil, otherwise they will never make that growth. 
Oh, I mean, it's true. It's a nice, it's yeah. a ni- it's nice a outlook. Sentiment. I think it's a good, yeah, it's a good sentiment. It's a good way of looking at your garden. Yeah, you're not trying to say, oh, that's wrong there, or that needs to be, you know, looking pretty over here. It needs to be a tiny hedge because that will go with the fountain. Um, mm. It, you know, it's more about like, oh, this is growing here already, and how do I help it grow, and how do I make it, yeah, sustainable. Yeah, and also she was, uh, she fancied Virginia Woolf, so. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine too. Oh, more on them later. <laughs> Maybe in another episode. I love this. It's such a lovely book. Um, you should definitely tell us about it in a, a whole episode. I definitely will. It's a, I haven't finished the book yet, but um, yeah, it's the love letters between um Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackleverse and sort of diary entries. Um, yeah, vintage oh, classics. Wow. Bought copy from Gaze the Word. It's lovely. Lovely. Um, so the final thing I want to talk about uh, today is uh, the Pansy Project. Um, okay. Yeah. Which. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was started no, by I the remember, artist. I remember going to Brighton Pride and there was a bunch of men dressed as pansies. Mm. I mean, yeah. yeah, pansy is obviously one of those reclaimed uh, words where um, people were sort of, it was a bit of a slur, a bit of a slang term to be called a pansy. People yeah. are still called pansies. Uh, my mum calls me a pansy from time to time if oh. I'm, you know, scared of spiders or if I don't want to touch something <laughs> disgusting. Um <laughs> Uh, she calls me a pansy, um, not because she's a massive homophobe, but just just that was the lingo of the time. For um, someone who wasn't brave. <laughs> exactly. You know, pansy, dandy, like these are, you know, all these kind of flowery terms. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You can yeah, definitely yeah. analyse that. Anyway, the Pansy Project was started by the artist Paul Halfleet, mm-hmm. uh, where he began planting pansies on the streets of Manchester to sort of physically mark plots of land like where he had personally experienced homophobia in the city. Wow. So the project Halfleet plants single unmarked pansies uh, globally on sites of um, homophobic abuse, uh, usually without permission. What the artist describes as a as a gesture of quiet resistance, you know, gorilla, yeah. and that's kind of gorilla, gorilla, gar- yeah, gorilla yeah, gardening, yeah. doing it without sort of permission and yeah, not really being sorry for it, making something gardening, yeah. beautiful out of something kind of hideous um obviously a lot of um homophobia and and transphobia is underreported or you know that's or under not under punished i'm not big on punishment but like it's there's no it's under confronted under confronted by anybody and i think that you know because of a lot of the gay shame like i know that when i've experienced homophobic abuse i've just sort of sulked away and just felt like yeah i'm shit you're right yeah like i don't feel like it's something i want to fight back about yeah, maybe I maybe I deserve that. I don't know. Mm. Sort of, there is a lot of shame, yeah. isn't there? So I think with the Pansy Project, what I like is that the flower it's documented and it's it's titled after a quote that relates to the abusive experience. So I'm not I'm not going to say the names because that might be a bit you know a bit triggering. But it's basically you know they've given these really violent titles which really juxtapose with the visual of you know a beautiful pansy. But it really highlights like the reality of homophobia and transphobia and you know all that abuse that people experience in their daily lives around the world mm. and i just thought yeah i just thought you can read about it and um i think i think he's also i think paul halfley has also put out a book called um, pansy boy which is kind of about the project and it's a kind of picture book and it's just for children and i think it's about how to kind of combat um homophobia and sort of um verbal abuse that young people or any age really might experience so yeah Gosh. something something nice to come out of yeah. um something a bit horrible so around the world if you ever see a single pansy um planted yeah just be conscious of yeah the history that might be there and you know some of them flourish and that's a kind of good two fingers up at homophobia but yeah some of them probably just fade into the the hedgerow you know anyway yeah. so that's um that's my kind of intro my very brief intro to um gardening and, and horticulture and and my kind of thoughts on queerness and why we're attracted to gardens and why we have kind of a need to see things grow yeah um, but also why we're 
as queer pe- queer people more comfortable with the the wild and the and the uh, un- un- untamed. Yeah, I love that. That was so good, and it is a real thing. Like also the the image or the idea of like a a butch female gardener is is definitely a stereotype, and the the kind of dandy flower flower shop owner and things like that. And I just think that there is a lot to be said for kind of just enjoying something as well, and that, mm. that like just allowing ourselves to enjoy what we want because we're already on the outskirts and why not be yeah. the pansy or be I don't yeah know, I, don't know. I just um i love it i love being in the garden but for me it's yeah it's a bit of an escape it's quite meditative sometimes you need that in the world that we live in you know mm-hmm. definitely yeah thank you so much you're welcome okay so i actually don't know did you see my screen earlier no i didn't okay good. i was very i thought very conscious <laughs> good good that's a, a good thing I thought you might have seen it and I was a bit bit upset. No, no. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story of two lesbian pirates, <gasps> Mary, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. Oh, Do you my know goodness, them? no. Okay, so they're a very historic pair of... I got really excited doing this. Um, high-flying sons of bitches who are cross-dressing, love-triangling, homosexualing queens of the high seas. Yes. That said, they were also very damaged individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, who were definitely vicious, murderous women uh, who were a scourge on the earth. But, uh, mm. you know, we take what we can from history. <laughs> yeah. Not every queer person in history is going to be like a quiet, retiring, I don't know, gardener or uh, author. <laughs> or good person. Books. Or good. Some of us will be absolute shits. To acknowledge my sources, I read a number of different articles for this and I tried to kind of combine the stories because there are some very exciting versions of the story out there and some less exciting and I tried to include some of the kind of mythological elements of it and some of the more um, some of the reality and I didn't read the original book that um, is kind of the one of the biggest sources because it's a 1724 book by Charles Johnson which is possibly a pseudonym of Daniel Defoe and it's called The General History of the Robberies and Murders Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates which sounds like a banger to be honest yeah um, but I did read uh, Lesbian Pirates, Annie Bond and Mary Read by Richter Norton on richternorton.com. Uh, I read If There's a Man Among Ye, The Tale of Pirate Queens, Anne Bonny and Mary Read by Karen Abbott on smithsonianmag.com. Um, one on Theatre Times called Lesbian Pirates, A Historical Look at Disability and Queerness by Colin Hambrook. Mm. And one on the Daily Mail called Plan for Eight Foot... It's a very long title. I don't know if you know that they love their long titles, so... <clears throat> Plan for eight-foot statue of lesbian pirates in Devon beauty spot notorious for smuggling triggers uproar as critics slam sculpture as patriarchal view of two skinny women with holes cut out by Amy Gordon. And thanks for the amazing headline, Amy. Wow. <sighs> that's made me a bit out of breath. So I guess <laughs> That's the we'll whole get... article. It's just flash. flash yeah, exactly. Article. It's just, that's it. That could be the first line, but that is literally the title. The title. Yes. So I have to tell you the stories of the two of them separately, first of all, and we'll begin with Anne Bonny. So apparently uh, reports first describe Anne Bonny, who was born Anne Cormack in 1710, where she's described as a tomboy in the port of Charleston, South Carolina. But in Charles Johnson's book, he states that she was born in County Cork in Ireland around 1698 uh, to a maid, Mary Brennan, who... So Anne's father, William Cormack, had an affair with the maid and the maid, Mary, had Anne. I always wonder a little bit like how much these affairs are sort of actual affairs and not yeah. assaults or whatever because yeah. it wasn't great to be a maid I'm sure at the time but and you know if it is as Johnson aka probably Defoe um, he was also a fiction writer uh, so he wrote Robinson Crusoe I think mm-hmm. and so he may have embellished for a good story which I don't I don't I don't deny yes Anne was born out of uh, an illegitimate pairing with her father but her father was very fond of her and requested her to come live with him 
But he also dressed her as a boy and said that she was a child of a relative and somehow that necessitated her being a boy and that he was trusted to look after her, or him, right. her, him. Uh, when she was dressed as a boy, he would refer to her as his like nephew or whatever. Okay. Um, and eventually the three, Mary, her mum, William and Anne, emigrated to Charleston, South Carolina. But Mary, her mum, died in 1711 and then Anne began to exhibit fierce and courageous temper. Apparently in the Smithsonian um, magazine and in others, she murdered a servant girl with a knife and almost Savage. Yeah, and almost beat to death a suitor that tried to that tried to rape her. So definitely okay. Well that's she's got like a bit of a temper. Um yeah, pirate tendencies. A violent violent temper, yeah. So um she also apparently this is I think this is probably a bit of an embellishment, but she apparently once publicly undressed her fencing master button by button with her fencing sword. Uh, which sounds so good. That's very filmic, isn't it? Yeah, like, very, very sexy. Filmic, very, like, yeah, a uh, bit embellished, I think. Um, <laughs> as she grew up, she cut her hair short and her, quote, face was dirty and her habits were rowdy. Ah, uh, the natural way. Yeah, she sounds like an absolute riot. Yep. Um, she was apparently a good, but uh, she was also apparently a good and dutiful daughter. But I don't know about that because her father became tired of the endless rumours of her sleeping around and being drunk and fun and disowned <laughs> her when she married a poor sailor in seven, 1718, James Bonney, hence Anne Bonney. They ran off together, James and Anne, uh, to New Providence, which is now Nas- Nassau in the Bahamas, which was a haven for lots of pirates such as Blackbeard, Captain Kidd and things like that. And James became a professional snitch. So he started <laughs> turning in pirates to the authorities to get a bounty on them, which is... Naughty. That breaks some sort of C code, right? I think it def- probably did it. I, I feel like that would definitely get him killed. Yeah. But Anne abandoned him and was like, peace out, and had a great time drinking and sleeping around. Yeah, and, you like, fucking snitch. <laughs> all, in all the bars with all the alcohol that was uh, available there. And she was advised at one point to get some male protection, which is probably probably quite sensible advice for the time. So mm-hmm. she became the mistress of the wealthiest man in town. If you're going to do Naturally, it. yeah. One of the, her friends that is sometimes described at this time was definitely... Uh, or definitely sounds like a queer person if he's real, and he's called Pierre. Uh, I'm gonna say <laughs> Bupo. Pierre Bupo. Bupo, uh, aka Pierre the Pansy. Pierre the Pansy. Coming right back. And he ran a coffee shop, hairdressing, and dressmaking shop, and was a, di- a designer of fine velvet and silk clothing. Now we definitely shouldn't stereotype, but that sounds pretty gay to me. Yes, yeah, pretty, pretty queer, if not uh, made up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's real. So there's one legend or, or like myth that tells of how Pierre helped Anne launch into a privateing career of herself, in which uh, Pierre <laughs> got... <Egging> her on. <laughs> Go on. Um, so they covered themselves and her ship that they'd stolen in loads of turtle blood and set up one of Pierre's mm. dressmaker's mannequins um, at, on the helm or at the front of the ship, mm. covered it in blood too, and then Anne stood over it, covered in blood, holding it out. Yeah, we need more blood. And then sailed towards a French merchant ship, apparently under the light of the moon, which is just definitely <laughs> so, like elaborate. So cinematic. Uh, and they reportedly uh, scared the French merchant ship so much that they handed all their goods over without a fight. Mm. Again, possibly an embellishment fun one though uh eventually after further shenanigans uh captain woods roger how much more sh- how many more <laughs> there's, there's loads of shenanigans Love it. rogers who was on the island he liked to rind uh, round up pirates and um you know send them off to meet their to like get their comeuppance and he mm. offered anne to return uh, to turn herself in and commit to reforming in order to get a pardon from the king 
but she was like, nah. And she sort of knew that she wouldn't get away with some of the murders and things that she'd done, <laughs> even with a pardon. And mm. so she and one of her lovers from her drinking and sleeping around days, John Calico Jack Rackman. Mm-hmm. Calico Jack apparently has something to do with his colourful trousers. And Pierre as well escaped by boat. And as they sailed past the governor's boat, Anne was stood uh, apparently naked to the waist, tits out, waving a dainty silk handkerchief to the governor like a fine lady off on a voyage. Oh, very good. And technically she was second in command on the boat to Jack, but she kicked him out of the captain's quarters and lived there alone instead. Apparently she apparently also killed one sailor who was a little bit too keen and his advances were a bit uh, obnoxious and definitely uninvited. Look, don't fuck with the pirates. They'll kill you. They'll just kill you. They just, like, literally, without question... So she lived on the boat mostly as a woman. She didn't hide her gender. Um, but when they engaged in a fight with other ships, she would dress as a man. She wore a loose tunic and a w- and wide short trousers with a sword hitched to her side and a brace of pistols tucked in a sash. <laughs> and here's a, but here's a little snippet from the Smithsonian that just wants to bust some bubbles, so I'm going to bust them for you. The notion of walking the plank is a myth, as are secret stashes of gold. It's a nice idea, buried plunder, says maritime historian David Cordingly, but too bad it isn't true. Pirates ate more turtles than they, than they drank rum, and many were staunch family men. Captain Kidd, for instance, remained devoted to his wife and children back in New York. Another historian, Barry Berg, contends that the majority of sexual, sexual dalliances occurred not with women, but with male sailors. Oh, okay. boy. Um, and now this takes us on to Mary Mark Reed. Mary had a bit of a turbulent start as well. Uh, her mother had a legitimate son first, Mark with her husband and then her husband died at sea Uh, and then Mary's mother moved in with her mother-in-law and then became pregnant again while living there at some point the son Mark died so um, Mary's mother dressed up the illegitimate Mary as (laughs) Mark instead to continue receiving Ah. money from her husband's family dressing him as the legitimate son and to get the inheritance (laughs) you look younger every time I see you (laughs) because only men were allowed to inherit anything so she couldn't have uh, a daughter. Yeah, hustle. Right? But they were discovered and disinherited. Uh, and Mary's mother kept dressing her as a boy anyway and would rent her out as a servant or a footman. Yeah, a I guess boy, m- sorry. men could work. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was there was more job opportunities for young men as well. So it's said that eventually Mary apparently began to prefer her male attire and did apprentice as a footboy, so got a job, and apparently excelled at living as a man. Uh, at around 13, she served as what I think is really funny, a powder monkey uh, on a British man of war ship during the War of the Grand Alliance. So basically that's someone that carries gunpowder from the ship's hold to the gun crews. Just gives them back, back and forth, back and forth. A powder monkey. Love powder it. Powder monkey. Yeah. Brilliant. And I just, when Brilliant I was term. writing it, I was imagining like, you know those barrel monkeys? Yeah. That you're like hooked together. One yeah, of those, but yeah. like walking along with a bag yeah, of yeah, uh, yeah. gunpowder in either arm. Maybe there's something in it. Later she joined the army and fell in love with her bunkmate during one excursion and she confessed her true identity to him and according to some accounts the sailor's first thought was like yeah let's do it here immediately right now and she was like no i am a chaste woman so she wasn't like Anne, who loved to bonk so she quit the army and married the soldier and they opened up an inn but her husband died and the inn failed and that so, honest, so for men, lots of job opportunities, but not a huge high mor- mortality. <laughs> exactly. So the story it's the story of most women. I feel it's like they get married and then they're immediately widowed. They're just left, yeah. And they're like, wow, wow. So this is life. So yeah, after he died, she took up her Mark persona again and joined a Dutch merchant ship as Mark Reed. And this ship was captured by English pirates, whom she joined. 
and some say that this was Anne and Jack Calico's ship, uh, Calico Jack's ship, but others just say it was a different ship, and then they both ended up in New Providence at the same time and met okay. there. So it was one or the other. Either way, they met. They met. Uh, on the ship, she was aboard. Mary, Mark, seemed to pass very well for a man, and loose clothing uh, hid her breasts, though. And though she had no beard, that wasn't actually uncommon. Most of the mates on the ship would be teenage boys or in mm. their early 20s, malnourished and, like, fairly clean-shaven. Uh, no, not clean-shaven. Just not have beards yet. Mm. And it was probably likely that due to mal- malnourishment and stress, Mary probably didn't have periods either, so that wouldn't have given her away. And I was thinking that actually, you know, although baggy clothing would have hidden her chest, like, I don't think chest binding was uncommon. I don't think it was unheard of. I'm, I think it's quite an old practice to kind of bind one's chest. I mean, I was so already done that too. Yeah, I mean, already things like, you know, corsets and, yeah. like, it's fairly common practice to kind of have unknown. undergarments. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so once they were on a ship together, Anne and Mary became very, very close. And there's lots of reasons people say for this. So finding a single other female pirate in the world of pirates could have been an amazing like friendship to have, a mm. great solace for both of them. And perhaps that friendship could have even afforded them some kind of protection. Mm. One commentator on the uh, commenter on the Smithsonian article said that, you know, there was actually quite a large age gap between them. So it could have been like a mother-daughter mentor-mentee yeah. bond. But there's also, you know a lot of evidence to say that they could have been lovers. They were very intimate and they spent a lot of time in that captain's cabin together. Mm-hmm. And at one point, that, that amount of time they spent together made Ca- uh, Calico Jack pretty jealous. And so one day he is said to have burst in to try and catch them at it and found Mary, slash Mark, either fully naked on the bed, tits out, or sat on the bed and um, she then got her tits out to show him that she was a woman, being like, do these look like a man to you? Or whatever. <laughs> um, basically to avoid being killed because Jealous Jack was about mm. to cut her throat. And she Quick, was like, no, no, I have boobies. Somehow, you know, an affair with a woman wasn't considered at all. So he was just like, oh, okay then, that's fine. <laughs> and at some point, apparently, Anne's husband rejoins the scene, oh. James Bonney. Uh, he came to apparently reclaim his wife, uh, bound her and took her before the governor to gain a divorce by sale, i.e. to sell her to someone else to make up for his, I don't know, losses because she was a bad wife maybe. Which is awful. And apparently she was so irate, um, as you would be, and she cursed and screamed and protested so vehemently that no buyers dared step forwards to claim <laughs> such a, quote, hellcat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was released and she was meant to be returned to James, but um, he ran off in terror of the wrath that he had incurred. So, like, yeah, he just ran away. And whether that's true, it's a really good story. Um, and apparently Mary <laughs> had to persuade Anne not to shoot the governor. And instead, together, they set out in pursuit of James, but he escaped after a merry chase. But they burnt down his turtle business, which there's a lot of turtles involved. Turtle blood, turtle businesses, turtle eating. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's why turtles are so rare now. Just pirates. eaten by all the pirates, yeah. I think that's because of the eggs, though, isn't it? People eat the eggs. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> it actually says right here, back to the story. Uh, mary had just flashed her tits at Calico Jack, yep. I remember. Um, he was like, oh, okay. And then uh, Mary continued to dress both as a man and a woman variably time to time on board. But during battles, they both always fought side by side in men in battle outfits. Billowing jackets and long trousers, handkerchiefs around their head, you know, like a bandana, Mm -hmm. and a machete and a pistol. They were apparently very active on board, a victim later testified. I love they've got victim testimony (laughs) in these articles and willing to do anything. And the summer um, and autumn of 1720 basically was especially lucrative for Calico Jack, John Rackman's crew, uh, because they plundered and raided loads, loads of ships. Um, And then eventually a 
man-of-war ship was sent to capture those infamous women. The governor sent a vessel of his own, which was so well-staffed and well-equipped that they ended up disabling Calico Jack's ship and Jack ordered his men to surrender. And the men cowered in the hold and would not come out to fight the good fight. Uh, and Mary was apparently so disgusted by this show of cowardice that she shot down just into the hold and was like, you know, you're not men, but in like old timey speak. Mm-hmm. And she apparently killed someone <gasps> because she just shot indiscriminately just into the hold. Out of control with that. She's absolutely mad. That gun. And then Anne, Mary and the rest of the crew were finally overpowered and taken prisoner. Aww. Then the pirate crew were taken to trial in St. Jaga de la Vega, Jamaica, <laughs> convicted of piracy on November 28, 1720, and sentenced to be hanged. Calico Jack was scheduled to be hanged, and his final request was to see Anne one more time. She had w- only one thing to say to him. She said, if you'd fought like a man, you wouldn't have had to be hanged by, like a dog. <laughs> oh, so, brutal. Bit harsh, right? Absolutely brutal. And then he was hanged. So. Yeah, and then he was hanged and was dead. Wow. And then ten days later, um, Anne and Mary stood trial, and both of them pleaded not guilty to all charges. Though I don't know how they thought they could get away oh, with no, that. Not no, us, no, no, I wasn't there. I'm sorry. But they also did what's called, um, they pleaded their bellies, which means so. they both claimed to be pregnant and were <gasps> pardoned because the court would not hang an unborn child. Ooh, yeah. that's a good... That's a good tip. Yeah, though neither of them, in fact, bore a child and almost certainly was uh, neither were pregnant. Mm. So evidence of their homosexuality um, together or for each other specifically is not actually that clear cut as we might wish. And I sort of think most likely they were bisexual because they both had lots had of... husbands, um, yeah. Yeah, well, they had husbands, which was kind of like... And, yeah. Yeah, standard at the time. You had to have a husband. But they, um, like, especially Anne, continued to have affairs with men all over the place mm. just because she could. And Mary also fell in love with that sailor on the boat, mm. although it probably was all just men. At the most, we could probably say they were bisexual yeah. if they were together. And, you know, I don't think they were particularly well-known diarists or letter writers. And so Too busy not... shooting around. Right, too busy, like, plundering and stealing and stuff and just <laughs> causing absolute havoc. So I don't think it's possible to ever really tell. But, you know, they were so intimate together, and reports of them were that they were very, very intimate, mm. that I think we can assume that they they may have at least tried it. Mm. But... You know, any likely evidence would probably not be found even if we knew where to look because I'm pretty sure pirates were not well-known record keepers. No. And the Richter Norton article ends with this. In any case, we must take into account Anne and Mary's dismissive treatment of their temporary male uh, paramours and even their children. So actually, I didn't mention, but Anne had a child at one point and then it just disappeared. Um, (laughs) She lost it. She lost lost it. it. And obviously their enjoyment of cross-dressing and the fact that they acted together as a couple obviously loved one another is evidence that they must have um, be relevant in some way to Mm. the history of lesbian experience and I think and I think personally not just the lesbian experience but the queer experience of just Mm. messing with gender a little bit you know yeah throughout their lives you know very much integral part of who they were and how they navigated the seas and 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 cabins and each other and, and yeah just they were just doing what they wanted to do and I think that was that's really great mayhem Mary although they were like hurting people quite a lot yeah on that note actually there is planning permission at the moment uh, no there had been planning permission requested to place a statue of the two women mm. on a historic f- site in devon however there's you know there's been a lot of pushback about this because for a variety of reasons pirates. Um, and actually most of them i don't think the reasons are because they're queer mm. so there's not actually any real link with the pirates mary and anne to the area 
from what I can see, and the local people don't seem to want a statue commemorating two notorious pirates who reportedly killed many people in their time pirating. Mm -hmm. Uh, One critic said, um, it's a negative portrayal of women and was celebrating a couple of violent criminals who contributed nothing to the local heritage. Oh dear. Deviants. Exactly. The statue was also quite elegant looking, and uh, one... one, uh, not the image of ruffians about to murder your whole crew and steal your belongings. One person described it as a very patriarchal view, two skinny mm. women with holes cut out. So they're sort of like interesting silhouettes, but they're very like patriarchal views of, of a woman's body. They're not um, sort of shown in the kind yeah, the kind of butch, strong, yeah, baggy like clothing. Yeah, someone who's holding a machete in one hand and a gun in the other. They would yeah. have massive Someone shoulders, who's covered least. in turtle blood, yeah. Exactly, it doesn't give you that vibe. It gives you the vibe of, of like... Oh, I'm a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, gives, kind of gives you mermaid vibes. Um, and there is, in the area, there's actually a very rich history of, of fishing. And, um, you know, a lot of people were saying, why don't we just have... If we want a statue of women, why don't we have a statue of the fisherman's wives or something, mm. some woman from our town yeah, nice who idea. was very important. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like a much yeah, better Yeah, more statues idea. of fishermen's wives. And I'm going to end on a fun note. Um, because of their habit of disguising their gender... Um, the two, Mary and Anne, whenever they're painted, they're usually painted flashing one of their tits. <laughs> and it's not because they wow. would just get one out all the time, but it's because they, the, whoever's painting or drawing them wants to show, like, this isn't your normal pirate, this is a boobied pirate. Ah, boobied pirate. And pirates. it's like, um, yes, yeah, so they paint them with one out. And sometimes they're, like, fighting each other with one out each. <laughs> it's just really funny. Um, yeah. So that's that is brilliant. Mary and just... Anne. Being a pirate pirates. with one boob out, exactly one tit out, swinging pirates. it around. It's just very yeah. You wouldn't do that because you couldn't because you couldn't tell they were women otherwise. You had no, to have no, a tit no. out. You've got to. That's the only defining feature of women. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't Tits. know that. But thank you for yeah, enlightening yeah, yeah, definitely, me. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> that happens a lot in historical paintings. You know, there's all those. There's that French Revolutionary one, isn't there? Yeah, okay. and then it's just like, oh, bad. Whoops. And like, one to be slipped. fair, if you're like bat- going into battle and your shirt has been sliced off with a sword, like that is fair. You know, you're just gonna run forward and trample on your enemies. You're not really gonna be like just cover myself up oh that's true that is true but i think that it would have to be a really specific cut to the clothing to just expose one booby yeah and also it'll be all like it would have a huge gash across it too mm, that's true from the cutting sure it's that light kind of fence fencing hand well like zorro just undresses you <laughs> you're like oh no, oh, no. <laughs> but yeah you're right it's always isn't it um I thought you said that ended, right? She was... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She undressed her fencing instructor. No, I was thinking about Hannah Gadsby about when she because de- she's uh, an art historian. She mm. talks about how there's all someone's already always painted with just a cheeky one out. Yeah. Just because because you want to yeah. see a boob, apparently. Yeah, and like, would you would you be going into battle like wearing skimpy, you know, ter- easy easily terrible clothing? No, like I'd why be, like, do the women not have those babies down? Why don't the women have like actual battle attire and I don't know battle like, bras battle bras yeah more <laughs> battle bras for pirates exactly we'll start a campaign battle bras for pirates yeah yeah just thank like, you very much that's for that like, I had a g- great time researching this because <laughs> I kind of knew about them a little bit but um not really and the the theater times one there's a there is a there is a there is a, a play that's in development slash might already be developed and it's called lesbian pirates exclamation mark um and it's about uh, disability and queerness in history but how accurate it is to what it was like back then because mm. there's, there's a whole there's a whole study of disability in pirating pirating i'm gonna say <laughs> because uh, so many people acquire disabilities as a result of being mm. a pirate missing limbs things like that yeah. and how they just be like oh well we'll just 
prop you up with this wooden leg and you're like yeah, oh you're missing an eye well that's fine like you can use inclusive. the other one yeah, yeah very inclusive missing a hand here have a hook have a hook be more badass now so yeah there's a, there's a lot of research into that uh, you're so right it's maybe the first it's the first time in i guess in in literature and, and you know children's books and tv that it's it's really normalized and just you know never yeah. never mentioned as a disability never a detractor. yeah detractor and it's almost like it's it's a it's a battle scar isn't it and it kind of in some way the more prosthetics you have the more fierce you must be because you must have fought many You've battles survived many things exactly um yes but so that maybe that's the story for another time mm. it sounds great thank you so much for that no, that's um, no fantastic yeah that was a great um, i think that's what i'm going to dress article up as. and uh, yeah, good next... cosplay uh, yeah good cosplay exactly. opportunities lesbian pirates I might, I might like get a fake boob to put on the outside though. I'm not mm. gonna put my actual boob out there. Yeah, just get one of those kind of drag boobs that. Are, um... Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get us, you can find us on social media uh, at Radio Zaddy X A D D Y on Instagram and on Twitter, and we have a website that you can reach from our anchor site. So if you t- type in anchor.com. Uh, sorry, anchor.fm, Radio Zaddy, you should find us easily and you've got links to all the platforms where you can download our podcast and listen on your preferred system. And I think that's it. That is it. Thank you very much. I've been here with Hannah Bestwick. And I've been here with Daisy Thurston-Gent. Thanks for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye.